Oh my, I love Christmas. I love everything about Christmas, don't you? I'm so excited that this next four weeks in the month of November, we're going to be spending this Christmas season in the book of Isaiah. Specifically, we're going to unpack his prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 to discover what he has to say about the dawning of the age of the Messiah King. And here's what his prophecy says. I'm going to just start right out reading it. It says, For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We're going to take four weeks to unpack those two verses, that wonderful prophecy. Today we're going to look at the uncommon name of Jesus, the next week, the unseen realm, week three, the unclaimed throne, and week four, the unstoppable return. My favorite thing about Christmas is the lights. Every year, we put a string of lights on our fence as you drive into our driveway. They just really help brighten things up. We put them on the mantle above our fireplace. This year, Frankie even hung lights over the kitchen cabinets in the kitchen. And our Christmas tree, yes, it's up and it's lit. It stands tall, glowing bright with hundreds of little pearl white lights. But my most favorite lights of Christmas are the ones that we put up on our spruce tree right outside the house as we look out towards the lake. To me, the spruce tree lit up with Christmas lights is like a watchman in the night. It's like a spiritual sentinel. It faces east. And because it faces east, it reminds me that when Jesus returns, he's going to come from the east, the Bible says lighting our way for the Messiah King. For example, Isaiah 46, 11 says, From the east I will summon from a far-off land a man to fulfill my purpose. Zechariah 14, 4 says, On that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. Matthew 24, 23, Jesus said, As lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. And in Luke 1, verse 78, when John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, had learned of the time of the Messiah's coming, that it had arrived, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit, he sang a song. It's called the Benedictus of Zechariah. And he compared the coming of Christ with the sun rising in the east. And here's part of what the Spirit inspired him to sing. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. The sun always rises where? In the east. So Jesus will be like the sunrise 
visiting us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. I don't know about you, but I think that's cool. The Holy Spirit called Jesus the sunrise. The King James Version uses the word day spring. He's the day spring on high. I have a timer that turns on the lights of that tree, uh, the spruce tree, and it, they come on early in the morning. So I just love getting up in the dark and seeing these lights lighting up the darkness. Every morning I just can't wait to go into the living room, sit in my chair and have my devotions and that spruce tree is all lit up in the dark of the night, and it's just like a watchman out there looking out towards the east, signaling hope, signaling joy, signaling the promises of God's word, reminding me that Jesus is coming soon. Well, Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, the words that we're going to look at, they are like a multifaceted description of what God's saving work through his son Jesus Christ looks like. But before we look at the details of verses 6 and 7, I think it's important to see the context that leads into this prophecy because it's actually preceded four verses earlier in verse 2 with another prophecy. And here's what it says in Isaiah 9-2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. For those living in the land of deep darkness, a light will shine. So that means before Isaiah described the several aspects of Jesus' saving work that for which he would come to our world, he names the condition on the earth that precedes the coming of the Messiah. And he defines the need for which he comes. So what he's saying is that the condition of fallen humanity is depicted as like darkness, darkness. And that's the first word, the first message of Christmas, that Christmas begins in the dark. Darkness is the condition, it's the context for the revelation of the promised one who is coming. He comes to a world, the Bible says, filled with darkness. Now, that may seem like a pretty depressing way to start a joyful season of Christmas, but in truth, it's the only way we should start. In other words, we need to acknowledge this fact that Jesus came to our world because of darkness, like there's darkness in our world and there's darkness in our own hearts. And like Isaiah said, we are people walking in darkness. We need Jesus because we walk in darkness. And that's what sin has done to us as human beings. And we need to acknowledge that. That's why John says in his first epistle that we should walk in the light as he is in the light. And then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, will cleanse us from all sin. And later he said, if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to cleanse us of our sins. And it, Paul said in Ephesians 4.18 that what sin does to us is that it fills our minds with 
with a sense of rebellion against God that causes us to be full of darkness. He describes the human mind as full of darkness. And then in book of Romans chapter 121, he says their foolish hearts are darkened. So Christmas begins by pausing long enough to remember our need, our condition that caused Christ to come to the world our need for rescue, our desperate longing for a Savior. And I'd like for you to remember also that creation began in the dark. Genesis tells us that darkness was over the surface of the deep. The heavens and the earth were completely dark at that time. And then God's voice rings out, piercing the black canopy of lifelessness, and he says, let there be light, and there was light. And John's gospel begins echoing the first creation, saying that Jesus is going to bring a new creation. He is the second Adam. And so John intentionally begins his gospel with the same words that Genesis began. He says, in the beginning, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And he became the light that came to a world of darkness, John says. So the birth of Jesus, not only at, like creation, the first creation, in the second creation, the birth of Jesus began in the dark. The incarnation of God began in the dark. And here's how John put it in his gospel, chapter 1, verse 4. Jesus' life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell us about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came into the very world that he created. But the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. The good news is that Jesus brought light to this world's darkness. The sad news is that some people do not accept the light. His life brought light to everyone, but there are people who love the darkness rather than the light. Jesus came to be the dawning of a new creation to save us from the darkness of sin. Just like that first creation, his voice rang out, piercing the black canopy of our own lifelessness and he said, let there be light. And John says, in him was light, and that life was the light of men. Well, we need to remember that Christmas begins in the dark, not because that's a depressing way to start the season, but because darkness still exists. We're still dealing with it. Darkness still exists in our world because our sinful hearts do not like exposure. We don't like to bring our sin to the light and own it. 
take responsibility for it. So we need to remember, this is how we start Christmas out, by acknowledging our need for which Jesus came, that Jesus came to extinguish the dark, every darkened corner of our own heart and mind so that we don't live in denial. Christmas begins by admitting we need God's saving work. I wonder if this is why C.S. Lewis chose to make winter the condition of Narnia in his book, The Chronicles of Narnia. You know, Narnia, it was frozen in the grip of the wicked witch so that it was always winter. Well, the thing about winter that I think makes it a fitting metaphor of a sin-cursed world is the bleakness of the darkness not the beauty of the snow. I'm going to just come to the defense for a moment, a defense for the beauty of snow, if you allow me. <clears throat> Whoever produced the movie version of the Chronicles of Narnia must have been a snow hater because, you know, in the movie version, Narnia, the, the, this place of you know, under the spell of the Wicked Witch, looks beautiful. It's a beautiful forested landscape canopied in glistening white snow. And, and to me, that's not a portrayal of sin and wickedness. The snow of winter is not exactly what wickedness looks like. When the Bible talks about snow, it associates it with God's forgiveness and the cleansing of our sins. Let me give you an example. In Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 1, uh, he said, Come now, let us settle this matter. The King James says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Let's settle this matter. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. Take that, wicked witch, right? <clears throat> Though they are red like crimson, I will make them as white as wool. And David, after he had sinned grievously, prayed this amazing prayer in Psalm 51, 7. He says, purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Furthermore, in Matthew 28, 3, Matthew says the angel that rolled back the stone at Jesus' resurrection had clothes that were as white as snow. And in Revelation 1, 14, when John received that incredible vision of the Lord Jesus, he said, I saw someone like the Son of Man. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. And Daniel 7, Verse 9, even in his vision, describes God the same way. He said, I watched as thrones were put in place, and the Ancient One sat down to judge. His clothing was as white as snow, his hair like purest wool. Well, when we look out at the snow, we see something beautiful. Uh, in the Bible, snow is not necessarily a picture of the curse of sin in our world. Darkness is. Darkness is the picture of sin. And as someone, uh, Mary Newcomb, when she was leaving the first service, she said, my, my mother used to always say that snow covers up a multitude of sins. <laughs> and that's what Isaiah said. Come now, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins be like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. 
They're, they're, though they're red like crimson, I will make them as white as wool. Yes, Isaiah says the people walking in darkness, not walking in the snow. <laughs> walking in darkness have seen a great light. For those who live in the land of deep darkness, a light will shine. I don't know if I just have this need to justify living in Alaska that, you know, and, and <laughs> encouraging myself to like the snow, but I love the snow. I mean, we all do. Pretty soon the entire world's going to be singing Irving Berlin's famous song, I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas, right? According to Guinness's Book of World Records, the, the version of I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas sung by Bing Crosby uh, was is the best-selling single of all time with estimated sales of over 50 million copies worldwide. And you know the words by heart. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas just like the ones I used to know where the tree tops glisten and children listen to hear sleigh bells in the snow. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas with every Christmas card I write. May your days be merry and bright, and may all your Christmases be white. Notice how this best-selling song of all time ends. It ends with a blessing. May all your Christmases be white. <laughs> well, I'm just saying that to point out that in Scripture, God's saving work is compared to snow. Come now, let's settle it, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. So I'm contending that snow is a good thing. It's a redemptive thing because it covers the darkness. And that is a picture of God's saving work, brightening the darkness. And have you ever wondered what is the most appropriate thing to put at the top of a Christmas tree? Frankie and I were talking about this a couple weeks ago and putting our tree up because we needed something new for the top. And, well, should we put an angel or should we put a star? Or what about a snowflake? You go down to Walmart and you look at the things they sell for the tr tops of trees and most of them are in the shape of a, of a snowflake. Well, is that theologically correct? I mean, is it, wouldn't it be more spiritual put an angel or the star of Bethlehem? A snowflake? Well, just remember Isaiah's prophecy, I'll make your sins as white as a snowflake. There you go. So that uh, can relieve the, the, the pressure. It doesn't matter whether you put an angel or a star or a snowflake. They all will do. And if you've thought that a snowflake is somewhat less spiritual, just think of that verse that Isaiah says. Well, let's look again at what Isaiah saw coming. He said, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, just love the way that metaphor is described, deep darkness. You ever walked in deep darkness? <laughs> I mean, literally, you've been lost in the dark and that darkness was deep darkness. I mean, it was darker than dark. That's, that's, that's hard if you don't have a flashlight. Deep darkness. But in a land of deep darkness, Isaiah said, a light will shine. So the second message of Christmas is that darkness does not have the final word. Darkness 
the darkness in our world, that deep darkness, the darkness in our soul, in our own hearts and minds, it does not have the last word. Isaiah said, a great light will shine and come to the darkness. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. So there's hope this morning. John began his gospel talking about Jesus coming to be the light of the world. He said, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. This reminds us of another old Christmas carol written in 1872 that's titled, In the Bleak Midwinter. I love that carol because it progresses. It it begins by uh, describing a world that's existing in the grip of winter's cold, the bleakness and the darkness of winter. And then under those conditions, the carol says, Christ comes. And then filled with gratitude, it ends with the question, what should I give him? And it answers, I will give him my heart. The song goes like this, in the bleak midwinter, frosty winds made moan, earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone, snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow, in the bleak midwinter long ago. Our God, heaven cannot hold him, nor earth sustain. Heaven and earth shall flee away when he comes to reign. In the bleak midwinter, a stable place sufficed. The Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ. Even for him whom cherubim worship night and day, a breast full of milk and a manger full of hay, Enough for him whom angels fall down before the ox and the ass and the camel adore. Angels and archangels may have gathered there. Cherubim and seraphim throng the air. But only his mother in her maiden bliss worshiped the beloved with a kiss. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I'd bring him a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what can I give him? I'll give him my heart. I'll give him my heart. That's the proper message, the proper music of Christmas. The first message of Christmas from Isaiah's prophecy is that Christmas begins in the dark. Then the salvation story unfolds, and God tells us that darkness will not have the final word. And then the third message of Christmas from Isaiah's prophecy is that God will come to earth himself to remove the darkness. God will deal with the darkness. He will not send someone. He will come himself. Isaiah 7:14 says, "Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel." Emmanuel means God with us. And in Isaiah 9, 6, he says that for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Emmanuel, God with us, will come to save us from our sins. And then in Matthew's gospel, at the time of Jesus' birth, you remember how an angel came to Joseph to give him reassurance to take Mary as his wife and told about how Mary was pregnant with Jesus. And the angel says, 
I want you to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then Matthew adds this parenthetical comment and says that this was a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. He said, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. What had the Lord spoken by the prophet? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall, shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. I just want that to settle into our thinking of how incredible, how mind-blowing that is. It's announcing the incarnation of God, that God will become human. God himself will come to earth. Jesus will leave heaven and come to earth and become the God-man. He will come to save us from our sins, to deliver us, rescue us from our darkness. Jesus put on flesh and blood and became fully human. In the words of the Nicene Creed, Jesus is begotten and not made. And that's significant because, as it says in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his own begotten son. Begotten means that he has the same nature as God. He's begotten, not made. If you make something, it's not going to have the same nature as you. You can make Christmas dinner, and that dinner may be wonderful, and it can reflect your culinary skills and your abilities, but it does not have your nature. That gravy does not have your nature in it. <laughs> it does not bear your likeness. Jesus was begotten and not made, meaning he became our flesh and he reflected in that the image of God. He became the image of God to us. He's, he retained the nature of God. It's like, here's how the Nicene Creed puts it. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. John, in chapter 1, verse 14, put it this way, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and full of truth, and he made his dwelling among us. Now that statement literally means, it takes us back to the Old Testament, and the, the word dwelling is the same word used in the Old Testament for the tabernacle. God tabernacled amongst his people. in the old, His presence was resided in the tabernacle and that word dwelling he will make Jesus will come and make his dwelling it's actually translated in some versions that he will tabernacle with us and it, it's in incredibly good news that the presence of God that was once restricted to the Old Testament now comes to us in Christ Jesus so you remember how the New Testament says, where two or three of you are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of you. He's here right now. He's here in this place right now to bring light 
to our darkness. And Jesus came to our world to reveal God's unrelenting commitment to not let this relationship with fallen humanity go down the tubes. Jesus took the initiative to reconcile us back to God, to rescue us when we're lost in the darkness. Jesus comes to be the new corporate head of a new humanity, a new creation. In one human being, humanity is united with divinity. The incarnation is God's response to our human brokenness and fallenness. It's Jesus showing us that God cares for us and God is not going to give up on us on you and me, on our world. It shows us his intention to provide us with a cure, bring light to darkness, a transformation, as far as the curse is found, we sang earlier. God intervened in the universe. He created a world to have fellowship with us. And he came to redeem us because he cares for us and doesn't stand aloof or indifferent from the human plight of sin. Now, the fourth message and the final message of Christmas that we find in Isaiah that I want to bring out this morning is that is how Jesus will be present in our world to bring his saving work to us. What will Jesus' saving work actually look like? Well, Isaiah gives us a picture of it, and it's packed full of a multifaceted display of Jesus' saving work. Let me read it for you. He says, For to us a son, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. In other words, he will take responsibility for the world he created and, and in its fallen condition. The, he will bear the responsibility for it and take the initiative to bring the cure to our world. And so he will be called when he comes. He will be a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And we're going to talk further about what all of that means in the next three weeks. But I just want to point out that this prophecy is like a stunning string of beautiful Christmas lights. It's the great light that the people walking in darkness will see. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's giving us four glimpses of glory coming to our world to help us as we walk in darkness. Christ came among us for two basic reasons. First is to reveal the true nature and character of what God is like in heaven. He came to reveal to us the Father so that we would know the Word became flesh, the revelation of who, what God is like became, came to earth. The word became flesh. Jesus said, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So he came to reveal what the Father is like. And secondly, he came to redeem us from our fallen and broken condition. And so these four names describe how we see the face of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Every name that he wears is a blessing that he shares. 
If he wears the name Wonderful Counselor, then he will talk to us. If he's a counselor, he's not going to be silent. He's going to guide us. So because he's a wonderful counselor and that's his name, that's the title over his office door, you can go into him and he will talk to you. He doesn't abandon you or leave you on your own. He's a wonderful counselor. Therefore, he talks to us and he guides us. If he wears the name Mighty God, then that means he will fight for us and he will heal us. That's his name, Mighty God. He's going to fight your battles for you and he's going to heal you. He's a mighty God. If he wears the name Everlasting Father, then he loves us and he's going to provide for us. He's going to care for us. If he wears the name Prince of Peace, then he's going to pardon us of our sin and forgive us of all of our iniquity. That great Scottish theologian Thomas Torrance tells of the time when he was a young army chaplain and he was on the battlefield and he was holding the hand of a young dying 19-year-old soldier in World War II. The young man asked the chaplain, Will God really turn out to be like Jesus? And Torrance answered and said, When we see the face of the Lord Jesus, we will see the face of God himself. Every name that Jesus wears is a promise that he shares because he comes from the Father. Every name that he signs off on is the future world that he will define. Carl Sagan claimed that the darkness is immortal. In other words, there will always be darkness, but it's not. Isaiah said, the time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. And it says in the book of Revelation, just listen to this, and night will be no more. They will need no light of a lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Let this thought just settle in your heart and give you hope. This great light that Jesus came to bring to our world is an unquenchable light. John said, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. I was thinking about this at the close of the the, the first service with the thought that Christmas begins in the night. That's Jesus' first advent. That's his first coming. The second coming says that he's going to come like the sunshine, like the morning star, right? Isn't that interesting? The Jewish day begins in the evening. The day of the Lord begins in the evening at night. He came in the night. It says shepherds were guarding their flocks by night. He was born in the evening. But when he comes again the second time, he's going to come in the morning. <laughs> I just like that. I don't... When we get to heaven, he's going to tell us all about that, what that means. 
But every name that he signs off on is a future world that he's defining. The government is on his shoulders. And then finally, every name that he reflects, for he reflects the nature of God, every name that he reflects is the nature in us that he will inject. As we follow the light, we become like him. We become his light bearers. We are part of a kingdom that has no end, reflecting the glory of an unconquerable, unquenchable light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What's that phrase, light of life, mean? Well, you walk in a room and it's completely dark. And then you turn on the Christmas lights. I got one of those new remotes from down at Home Depot where you can put, uh, put three different you know, plug-in things and you have a remote that turns those on. And I have them setting on all the Christmas lights. One little remote, you turn it on and whoo, the room comes to life because the light brings life. There's, it's true, light brings life. And that's what the scripture says. But whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. As we follow the light, we become his light bearers, and he injects his nature, his likeness of light into our own hearts. I love what Madeline Engel said, that we draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. Jesus did not assume our nature, did not come to be man because he's against us. He did that because he's for you. He wants to be your savior. He wants to bring light to darkness. He took on our nature because he's with us, Emmanuel, God with us. An old Scottish theologian says regarding Christ that the unassumed would be unhealed. Think about that. If he had not assumed our nature, we would be unhealed. The unassumed is unhealed. But that's not what happened. The truth of the Christmas story is that Jesus did assume fallen human nature. And because of that, we all share in the hope that we can be healed. We can be healed of every vestige of darkness and we can be changed. We can be changed into his likeness and image. It's like Corey Ten Boone says, and she tells a story in her little book, Reflections of God's Glory. And she says, in Africa, there was a man that came to one of her meetings where she was speaking, and he had bandaged hands. Corey Ten Boone says, I asked him how he had been injured, and he said, well, my neighbor's straw roof was on fire, and I helped him to put it out, and that's how my hands were burned. But Corey Ten Boone goes on and she tells, she says, but he didn't tell me the whole story. Later, I learned the whole story. And she said that neighbor that hated the Christian man, 
that neighbor actually set the Christian man's house on fire because he hated him so much while his wife and his children were asleep in the hut. They were in great danger, but fortunately the man was able to put out the fire in his own house on time before his wife and children died. But sparks flew from his roof over to the neighbor that hated him and had started his fire and lit the neighbor's house on fire, his hut on fire, and it started the burn. But because there was no hate in the heart of the Christian, there was only love for his enemy, as Jesus had said we should have. He did everything he could to go over and put the fire of his neighbor's house out. That is amazing, isn't it? <laughs> that is amazing forgiveness and love as Jesus has taught us, and that's how his own hands were burned. What I'm saying is that every name that he reflects, he's the Prince of Peace, he's the Mighty God, he's the Everlasting Father, he's Emmanuel, God with us. All of these names reflect the nature of God, not only that is in Jesus, but Jesus wants to inject in us as well, so that we are reflectors of his light reflectors of his glory. Many years ago, I was deeply impacted by this prayer for protection written by Richard Foster. Was especially drawn to the notion of surrounding myself with the light of Christ, and I would pray this over my family. Here's how the prayer goes. By the authority of the Almighty God, I surround myself with the light of Christ. I cover myself with the blood of Christ, and I seal myself with the cross of Christ. All dark and evil spirits must leave now. No influence is allowed to come near me, but that is first filtered through the light of Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray, amen. I remember reading that prayer and thinking, being so impacted by the power of light. I surround myself like protection with the light of Christ. I want to give you an opportunity now as we close to come forward and respond to this message, this promise given from Isaiah by receiving communion. That if Jesus came to our world to assume our nature, to reflect the nature of God and inject that nature in us, that's an incredible incredible thing, something you can't go to Walmart and get or Fred Meyers, nothing you can go to the liquor store and buy. It's only received from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who can chase away the darkness of our soul. <clears throat> so I invite you to come now, stand and, and come forward and receive communion and receive it by faith that Jesus is exactly who he said and he claimed to be, the light in the night. And let's start Christmas season by acknowledging and bringing to Jesus any darkness, any sin, and acknowledging it before him and saying, I'm, I'm done with living in denial. Jesus, bring your light to extinguish the night in my life. Father, we pray your blessing 
over this time of communion now as we receive it. We ask that it will be a, main, a means of grace to allow you to dispense your grace and your truth into our hearts now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.